This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. While our team of tax pros are well-versed in all things tax, our areas of expertise include rental real estate and equity compensation. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. At Capital Area Tax Consultants, we believe in pricing transparency and flat fees. Before engaging with us, you'll receive an upfront quote in black and white with a description of any services to be performed. This way, there are no hidden surprises. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Welcome to the Tech Money Podcast, the place where tech workers come to get smarter about their money. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to take you beneath the surface level and cover traditional personal finance topics in a way that is both approachable and relatable, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners, Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking about investing. More specifically, we're talking about crypto and the latest developments in regulation following the collapse of exchanges such as FTX, BlockFi, and Celsius. In recent years, the rise of digital currencies has revolutionized the way we think about money and finance, with more and more individuals and businesses embracing the potential of blockchain technology. However, with this rapid growth has come a significant amount of uncertainty and confusion around the legal and regulatory frameworks that govern this new asset class. And as the crypto industry continues to grow and evolve, the issue of regulation and security will remain a key focus for lawmakers and industry stakeholders alike. One of the biggest challenges facing the crypto industry today is the issue of security, with several high-profile exchange hacks and collapses leading to the losses of billions of dollars in assets. In response, lawmakers and regulators around the world have been grappling with how to protect consumers and investors in this space. In the U.S., Congress is currently considering several bills aimed at increasing oversight and regulation of the crypto industry, including measures to require crypto exchanges to register with the SEC and establish minimum capital requirements. So, my guest today, Andy Kramer, has been recognized as a global authority on regulatory, tax, and governance matters that arise in trading environments. Andy previously spent 30 years at McDermott, Will, and Emory, where she established and led the Financial Products, Trading, and Derivatives Group. She was also recognized by the National Law Review as the go-to thought leader in virtual currencies, and J.D. Super readers voted her a top author in cryptocurrency taxation. So needless to say, Andy knows her stuff when it comes to the world of crypto regulation. So this should be a good one. So with that brief introduction, welcome Andy Kramer to the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you so much, Malcolm. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, and I appreciate you making the time to do this. I would say to get us kicked off here, I breezed through your long resume very quickly in my intro there. What else should I have included? Well, the only thing is that um, I left uh, big law at the end of the year and I started my own firm, A.S. Kramer Law. So I'm now doing the same sort of work, but uh, uh, on my own. It's been very exciting. 
Yeah, you saved me from asking that follow-up question. I was going to ask, what's that been like so far? And exciting, I can imagine, if for no other reason than because all of the different pieces of regulation that are supposed to be coming out, all of the different pieces of regulation that have come out, the crypto winter that has fallen, the possible thaw that we keep hearing about to that crypto winter and everything else that's going on, I assume has kept you plenty busy. Absolutely. What's so interesting about it is that we don't know from day to day what new news is going to tell us what we didn't know yesterday. Mm -hmm. So it's been a wild ride. Well, I mentioned a couple times there in my intro, and we keep talking around it, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the current commissioner, Gary Gensler and his crew, and all of the different pieces of legislation that have been proposed in Congress and everywhere else around the world that governs these types of matters. What do you think is the biggest challenge or some of the biggest challenges are when it comes to regulating cryptocurrencies? Well, part of the problem is it's such a new asset class that we have to figure out what is it. Mm -hmm. And so each of the regulators have a very different view as to what crypto is and where it belongs. So, for mm -hmm. example, you mentioned the SEC. The SEC has basically come out and said that perhaps Bitcoin is not a security mm -hmm. directly, you know, the actual transfer of Bitcoin, but that if you bundle it up or you have it in something else or if anything tokens on Ethereum or many of the other blockchains, they're not prepared to say whether it's a security or not. Mm -hmm. And the tax people get to define these things based on what's in the definitions of the various tax code provisions. And of course, cryptocurrency was never considered when these rules were enacted. So from the SEC standpoint, what we've got is them saying that beware, these are securities. And if they're regulated as securities, then the issuers have to be registered and the exchanges themselves may need to be registered. And so there's all sorts of follow-up consequences. And so I guess the bottom line is that we don't know whether the SEC's interpretation is going to be correct with respect to many of these issues. Mm -hmm. But what we also know is that at present with the stalemates in Congress, that bills in Congress may go nowhere. Yeah, And so that leaves investors and crypto market participants kind of scratching their heads. I feel like bills in Congress generally go nowhere. And so that should be a, <laughs> a, a reasonable expectation in this case. But I also think if we don't get it together, we as the United States get it together and work to figure out whatever the right solution is going to be, we're running the risk of being left behind by other countries who do have a little bit more of a welcoming attitude toward digital assets as a whole. And that is one of the things that scares me. Legitimately, I would say that if we needed to wait for Congress to tell us what the rules are, nothing's going to happen. Right. And so what we've got is we've got the SEC on one hand saying that they think that most of these are securities. Yep. We have the CFTC, which is another regulator, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and the CFTC regulates commodities. And the CFTC has said that all cryptocurrencies 
are basically commodities and subject to their regulation. Mm-hmm. So we have dueling regulation issues between the two big regulators of the most likely regulators for cryptocurrency. The SEC on one hand saying it's mine and we get to regulate it. And the CFTC on the other hand saying it's mine, we get to regulate it. And so we have to keep in mind that there's also going to need to be some coordination between the regulators to figure out who's going to be on first base. And then if I may inject another layer of complexity into there or confusion into there for consumers, it's Congress, specific Congress people, also still saying we haven't decided whether these things have a place in our modern marketplace. And that then makes it even more complicated to settle whose baby it is and split it appropriately. I think that's a very good way to put it. What we have to keep in mind is there's yet another group that's stepping in in this area, and that's the bankruptcy courts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because as you mentioned in your lead-in, all of the situations where we've got collapses of exchanges and bankruptcy, because the bankruptcy law is a whole different set of regulations and laws. And so the bankruptcy judges have enormous authority to basically create law under the broad bankruptcy statutes. And so we have to keep in mind that we're going to be seeing some law coming out of that as well. Well, let's stay there for a second, because as we are talking about, there are a number of exchanges that have collapsed and unfortunately multiples more that will collapse in the future just based on the nature of how not having any sort of regulation and direction has led to sort of the wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to mean significant losses for investors. So what do you think can be done to prevent this from happening in the future? Well, I'd like to answer that question in two ways. One is, what about the losses that people have today? Mm, And then mm -hmm, look mm -hmm. at the losses in the future. Yep. And the losses today is a really tough subject. And because of the tax work that I do, I'm on the American Bar Association's cryptocurrency task force, where Mm -hmm. we're trying to work with the IRS to get some guidance from the IRS. And the problem is that the way that the tax laws work, a taxpayer only gets a deduction when they can demonstrate that they've had a loss. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to prove that you have a loss. Well, in these bankruptcies, even though what you thought was worth 100 is now worth one cent. Mm-hmm. That's still not a loss for tax purposes until it's all unwound. Yep. And so we have lots of people who are very unhappy because it's unclear or clear to the point that they're not allowed to take deductions when they believe that their investments are worthless. Yeah. And so that's the looking backwards. On the looking forward side, I know the ABA and others are trying to work with the IRS and the Treasury to get some guidance. In fact, the American Institute of CPAs, the AICPA, submitted a comment to the Treasury and the IRS just last week saying, you got to work on this law stuff. And so there's a lot of pressure on the Treasury and the IRS to tell us what they could give us or do in the tax side. But it's very At present, it's really, as you said, the wild, wild west. We really don't know. And so taxpayers are taking all sorts of positions 
basically saying, bring it on. And this is not a good way to encourage and advance the cryptocurrency marketplace in the United States. Yeah, which is sort of back to my initial point about the Congress needing to no longer be in denial about the fact that cryptocurrencies and digital assets in general are here to stay. Because I think a lot of the issue that you just described and the potential for more future losses in the same way is that it still seems to be a conversation of if instead of what. And that is driving a lot of the lack of action, I think, that would get to a place that cleans a lot of this up for consumers in the market space. But I want to go back for a second because we're basically talking about regulation here. That's the word that I would use as the overarching theme of the whole conversation. And some crypto evangelists, you know, they argue that too much regulation could stifle innovation in the crypto world. What's your take on this? Well, that's an interesting point because I could, I won't, but I could argue both (laughs) sides of it. And basically the arguments that regulation's bad and there's also the arguments that regulation's good. I'm going to take the regulation as good side because Mm -hmm. what we have to do is we have to provide guidance to people so they know what the consequences are of their transactions. So that I would say that, sure, too much regulation could stifle innovation, but who gets to decide too much regulation? Right. What we need to do is we need to figure out who has jurisdiction to regulate these things, what the consequences are for investing in them, buying and selling them, issuing them, providing a platform, a trading market forum. So we need that. We need a framework because without that framework, then everybody's on their own. Sure, people will then try to take the best position that they can to help themselves, but bad cases make bad law. And what we really need is we really need to have some clearly set out regulatory guidance so that people who are just participating in the marketplace are going to be in a position where they know what the answers are. Better to know what it is in advance than to not have a clue and fight about it later. I like the word framework that you use there a couple of times because it implies that it's just meant to be the starting point or a starting point and not necessarily the be all end all. And I think that's also one of the challenges we find ourselves up against is that a lot of the folks who are skeptics of the industry in general, want to see a fully thought out, fully born solution before they're willing to sign off on the fact that anything needs to happen at all. And I think if we just consider the shift that came in the early industrial era when we moved from horses and buggies to automobiles, no one said because they couldn't have, hey, we need to have stop signs, stop lights, manuals, driver's licensing, all kinds of training, all the different things that have come along over the last hundred or so years since the first Model T rolled off the assembly line, those things all came along afterward, right? We didn't have seatbelt laws until maybe 25 or so years ago. And Mm -hmm. we've all kind of migrated to whatever the new regulation became as we worked through understanding where the dangers were that didn't necessarily keep us from being able to use cars to get people and things from point A to point B, but we instead moved with the times. And so I think that's the approach that needs to be taken here rather than saying, 
show me the entire landscape and how you're going to solve all problems from A to Z when we don't even know what the real problems are going to be because we haven't had a chance to have enough cars on the road to really understand what a proper speed limit is, for example. But I won't belabor that point too much. I'll instead ask you a different question, which may take us in a different direction here. And that's, what do you think the main differences are between regulating cryptocurrencies and regulating traditional financial instruments, such as stocks or bonds or commodities or whatever else, right? You're talking about the different regulatory authorities that believe that they have a claim to digital assets. What do you think the main differences are that tell us who should have regulatory authority over them actually are? Well, that's really a great question. And the reason that it's a great question is that We've never really had an asset class as funky, weird, and unusual as cryptocurrencies. Yep. And so I think in the commodity space, regulators would argue that they've been there, done that, seen this, and that anything basically that trades is a commodity is sometimes how they want to present themselves. But I think that going back to your point, our points about frameworks that we talked about previously. Mm-hmm. One of the key things here is that you've got to make a decision as to how these things are going to be treated. And I think that there's a space for both the CFTC and the SEC in regulating different aspects of the crypto elephant. Everybody sort of feels different pieces of the elephant and they have a different view of it. And so we need to be certain that there is some reconciliation between them. But the hard part about cryptocurrencies is that because it's all digital and there's nothing to touch, it flies in the face of what so many people are familiar with as having a real asset. And so if we have an an intangible asset, which is what we have here, and you can't really feel it, and they're trying to feel the elephant, they can't quite figure out what to do. And so I think that What we have to do here is say stocks and bonds were not regulated overnight. Mm -hmm. They had the very same points that you made about the seatbelt laws or this law or that law. Mm -hmm. And what I immediately thought of when you commented about seatbelts and automobiles is that maybe it was 25, 30 years ago when it was mandatory, but my parents would have seatbelts installed in our cars. They'd have to go to the manufacturer and have them installed because nobody had them Mm -hmm. elsewhere. That was beforehand. And so the costs to the consumer are much higher when you don't have a framework in place. And so I think that the main differences are that you can't feel it, touch it, see it. The other thing is that they came up so quickly out of what regulators might view as nowhere. And so they've been blindsided and left behind. And so I think those are really the main differences, plus a little egg on the face of Congress people who were promoting some of these or who were poo-pooing them. And so everybody's got an ax to grind at this point, and no one really has an ability to move forward if Congress stays in the stalemates that we've seen the last handful of years. Well, so one of the issues that they seem stalemated on, not necessarily Congress because they've left it up to the SEC and the SEC commissioner, but 
there's been this delay in the approval of a Bitcoin ETF mm-hmm. multiple times, multiple, multiple times, right? And anytime anybody interviews Gary Gensler on it, he seems to kind of foreshadow the fact that no matter what happens, they're going to reject the idea of it each time it comes up for comment. Do you think we'll ever get there? Do you think it'll ever be approved? Well, I think that the reasons that the SEC doesn't want to have a Bitcoin ETF is that what what we were just talking about, which is you can't feel it, you can't touch it. Mm -hmm. But they're happy to issue and have authorized ETFs that are based on Bitcoin futures. And they think that somehow by having another regulator interpose, the CFTC, for futures, that maybe that makes it more safe for investors. And so the SEC's jurisdiction really turns on investor protection. Mm -hmm. And so until there's a price maybe where Bitcoin isn't going in circles up and down sideways, you know, it was on a steep increase last week and today it's Mm -hmm. down again. That's, I think, what the delay is until it has pricing that is not so random as far as the SEC is concerned and wild, then I suspect that they probably won't approve a direct Bitcoin ETF. But I have to imagine then that that makes this a chicken and egg issue because it's so thinly traded as part of the reason that it is as volatile as it is, right? Said another way, if more people were actually able to buy and hold Bitcoin as the example, then that means that the commodity or the security or whatever you want to call it wouldn't be as volatile because more people are able to hold it and more people will want to hold on to it longer term, presumably, than there are today. You'd have a lot more people selling and buying from each other, which helps to bring down the volatility of the asset versus the small pool of people who are buying and selling on a daily basis now, which drives the share price crazily in both directions throughout the course of the day. Well, absolutely. And I think that if we look at the futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, for example, ETFs are a wonderful way for investors to get in at lower prices where they don't have to make all the trading decisions themselves. Obviously, it's not like they're making decisions other than holding or when they have to close something out. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a Bitcoin future ETF, Well, the futures contracts all of a sudden become very valuable and that could be distorting the physical prices as well. Mm, And so mm -hmm. we have to keep in mind that it is a chicken and an egg and we don't know which one's going to come first. And that does pose part of the problem. But perhaps in the next year or two, if prices stabilize at some level and don't go from 80 to 10, you know, in record time, Mm -hmm. maybe the SEC will be more willing to approve a Bitcoin ETF. Personally, I think that just sticking with futures Bitcoin ETFs is a mistake and they ought to go with physicals, but they have not asked me. (laughs) But I think your point is a good one, right? You made the point earlier about the concern of the SEC being the protection of consumers, Right. And when you say that, I think about the fact that one of the better ways to protect consumers is to allow them to trade in a place that we have already made safer and more efficient than 
a lot of other places people could buy and sell securities around the world. And so what I mean by that is I, in my Charles Schwab brokerage account, for example, this is not meant to be an advertisement for Schwab necessarily. This just happens to be where I do my business personally or Fidelity or Vanguard or whatever. Those are institutions that are regulated by like 10 different organizations to make sure that the assets of their customers are safe and secure, to make sure that the deposits of their customers are safe and secure, to make sure that there are cyber protocols that are followed by every employee of these companies and so forth and so on, to make sure that these custodians are actually as safe and secure. And there's also different insurances from Mm -hmm. the Securities Investor Protection Corporation and Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and everything else, right? All of these things converge to make sure that the safest place for us to hold our assets, whether it's cash or stocks or some other securities, is these larger brokerages. So why not allow me then to hold my digital assets like a Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever else in the form of an ETF or something similar inside of one of those brokerage accounts, thereby making it a much more safe and much more secure than having to go to the Coinbase's of the world. No knock against Coinbase personally, but they happen to be probably the most widely known and widely adopted place to hold your crypto currently. That to me is the mistake. It's, you know, forcing people into the shadows, if you will, rather than allowing this asset into the main stage where we already know there's so many protocols that are there requiring it to be the safest place to hold all of your other assets. I agree with you a thousand percent. Yeah. I think that that's a good way to look at it. And the menu of options that people have as to how they can make their investments is an important factor and should be considered by the U.S. regulators. Yeah. And then, you know, more people get access, which means, again, it's no longer a thinly traded security because if I can hold it in my 401k plan at Fidelity, for example, which now is a thing, then it means that there's far more shareholders out there helping to stabilize the price, which to your point satisfies the SEC long term and so forth and so on. So one hand washes the other, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to put it. So going in a slightly different direction, I want to talk to you for a minute about stable coins, which are not necessarily the same and shouldn't be thought of the same way as a cryptocurrency like a Bitcoin or Ethereum or what have you. And they've become increasingly more popular in recent years, right? 2020 to now. Mm-hmm. Do you think these should be subject to the same regulations as other cryptocurrencies or should they be allowed certain carve outs on their own? Well, I think that part of the issue is that not all stable coins are created equally. And so for those listeners who are not familiar with stable coins, basically the concept is that they're backed by U.S. dollars or something else, and that allows them to basically track whatever they're backing so that if I've got a stable coin on the U.S. dollar, it's supposed to track the U.S. dollar. Well, if I have U.S. dollars in a vault someplace, then those stable coins should be treated fundamentally differently from a stable coin where, say, I'm backed by the U.S. dollar, but what I'm really doing is I have an algorithm where I'm doing calculations to determine how much U.S. dollars I need to have. Mm -hmm. And those types of stable coins, just because they're called the same thing, are really not the same product. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think that there's been a push and a move to treat stable coins regulated differently, primarily as if they're more like money, as if they're more like investing in money as opposed to in a cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there will be some different regulation of stable coins and not the same regulation as the other sorts of cryptocurrencies that we've been talking about. There's a number of reports out about with the government trying to figure out how to treat them. And so I think we might see movement with respect to stable coins sooner than we see regulation with respect to some of the hmm. other parts of the marketplace that are harder for them to get their hands around. Now, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. The fact that we could see a set of regulation and an approval and a rollout of a U.S. dollar stable coin before we ever get to a place where Bitcoin is widely adopted and used inside of brokerage accounts as a trading instrument. That's interesting as being the framework, the guardrails that help to set the stage for everything else that could come behind it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I really think that that's possible. Hmm. Okay. You've given me something else to think about. USD as a as a test balloon. Yeah. <laughs> so earlier on, you were talking about the fact that as it stands right now in the marketplace, folks have just resolved to just do whatever they want, basically. There's no clarity on what the rules are, and so I'll just make some up and do what I want. And when you finally come to tell me that I violated the rules, maybe I'll comply in the future going forward, and maybe I'll atone for what I did, and hopefully I made enough that the penalty is not nearly as much as what I stood to gain you know, in doing it, and mm-hmm. somewhere in between for most other people, right? And the IRS has already started cracking down on crypto taxes to that end. But I'm not sure that retail investors are taking it as seriously as they should be by now. What advice would you give to individuals that hold or transact in cryptocurrency as it relates to taxes? Well, the government has come out and basically said that as far as they're concerned, every transaction in a cryptocurrency is taxable, mm-hmm. basically. And so what they're doing is they're catching lots of people who thought that because it didn't have a tangible aspect to it, that somehow it was free money and they could just trade it and do whatever they wanted with it. So mm-hmm. I'm not talking about those people because those people are targeted by the IRS. They're going to get caught. And that's just the way the tax world works. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But for people who hold and transact in cryptocurrency otherwise, I would say a couple of things. First of all, last year, when the market price dropped so dramatically, much of the retail investors got blown out of the market and they didn't realize that they had leveraged positions. Mm -hmm. And so I think the first thing that I would say is that people who are investing in, holding, trading, whatever cryptocurrency that are sort of in the retail world, you know, they ought to be sure they understand what it is they're doing. And a lot of this stuff, the staking, the mining, the pooling, the this and that, they've been presented as easy ways to get a return. But in reality, there's a lot more involved. And so The first step is information is power, and I would recommend that people 
actually do more than just read the advertisement and actually dig deeper and try to figure out what it is that they've invested in. So that's sort of the first point. The other point is that even though we don't have definite answers about parts of it, there are some pieces that have answers. And so for people to just say, you know, screw it, I can just go ahead and do whatever I want is never good advice. And you would never hear a lawyer who's conscious give you (laughs) that kind of advice. So you're not going to hear it from me either. But also buying and holding, if you're going to put something in your 401k or your IRA, self-directed, you want to be sure that you're going to be protected from criticism that you were acting imprudently, that you were not a good fiduciary. And so you've got to be careful. And the Department of Labor, for example, has been coming out with, you know, finger wagging about putting these sorts of cryptocurrencies in your retirement accounts. And so I think we will be seeing some changes there. That's yet another regulator that we haven't mentioned yet mm-hmm. that's out there, the Department of Labor. And so taxes are creepy, but the <laughs> IRS on our tax returns for 2022 have amended the question about do you hold cryptocurrency? Mm-hmm. You want to be sure that the investors need to read that question carefully. And in fact, they define stable coins and NFTs as being cryptocurrency for purposes of answering yes or no to that question. I think they expanded it to just digital assets now, right? Yes, they got that because when the law was changed for reporting for brokers, what happened is the Congress used the word digital assets. And so now everybody's getting on the digital asset bandwagon instead of virtual currency or cryptocurrency or tokens or whatever. But the bottom line is that the definition that they have for digital assets this year for the 2022 tax return is really a very expansive definition. And that question, you just have to answer yes or no. Every one of us has to answer that question. And they put it on the tax return just after our name, rank, and serial number, basically. (laughs) Because they didn't want people to say, I didn't see it, Mm -hmm. which is what they said in prior years. And so now what we've got is we've got a question that we have to answer yes or no. That doesn't tell us how we reported on our return. That just tells us we have to say yes or no. I think that's another one of those things that gets cleaned up by regulation. And so if I'm the IRS, I'm making the case to all the other regulators who will listen, the fact that you're helping me help us. Basically, if you clean this up such that the brokerages now are required to report cost basis in a meaningful way, Mm -hmm. where right now they just send a 1099 that says this person traded in crypto and here's what the proceeds were. That doesn't necessarily solve the problem because now I, as the consumer, I, as the investor, am required to keep detailed enough records that I can justify, here's my cost basis, here's what I sold, whatever. But a lot of these things get traded so frequently that it's really tough to keep up with all of the transaction data that a behemoth like a Fidelity or a Charles Schwab or whoever I keep going back to would be able to because they already have the mechanisms in place to make sure the cost basis gets reported to the different taxing authorities the way that it should. So that's another one of those things that imposing regulation of securities that already exists on other securities on the custodians and the brokerages that do this work today 
would go to make everybody involved go to make their lives better and easier. I'm going to take a spin on that. Okay. Because I agree with you that they ought to be able to do a better job of reporting this stuff, but they're never going to be able to know my cost basis because I can be buying and moving this stuff around. And so I'm going to have to keep track of my own transactions. And there are Mm -hmm. a number of companies that can track this stuff for you. You just plug in your wallet information or whatever. And I don't know exactly how they do it, but so that there are services that I think are very reasonably priced that can help you do that. Mm-hmm. A question is that I've seen where a lot of big companies, not to suggest that this is an ongoing problem, but I've seen a lot of big companies where they get the math wrong because mm-hmm. they use algorithms mm-hmm. too. So you want to be checking you really want to have the the backup data to make sure that you are reporting the right stuff, primarily because you don't want to overpay yep. your taxes, which you could if a number's wrong. Well, that's the thing that I'm thinking about, where we currently use Schedule D, I believe it is, to report properly in conjunction with like the 8949 to keep from being too technical on this. Mm-hmm. That's the way that we currently will rectify cost basis that has been reported incorrectly on other things, right? If I have stock options, for example, that come from my employer, I receive them, but they don't report the full cost basis information. It's up to me as the taxpayer to clean all that up and make sure that the record is appropriately on file with the IRS. I see that as being a similar tax law that could be applied here, right? Maybe not identical because Mm -hmm. to your point, it's a totally different asset. So it might have some nuance that needs to be accounted for. But I could use that as the guidepost to start to build on top of to allow me to make people's lives easier from a tax planning perspective. Oh, I agree with you completely. Yeah. Well, anyway, I I won't belabor that point too much and I'll keep from going too much into the weeds and the nerdy little details to lose our listeners here. But my last question for you probably has not a lot to do with your day-to-day work at A.S. Kramer Law. So I'll ask you to Sit back in your seat, relax your shoulders. You can take that hat off for a second. But let's say for a moment you never found your passion for securities law. So you had to find a different way to occupy your days. But money wasn't a factor in your decision making at all. What do you think you'd be doing right now? I'd be painting and rescuing animals. Hmm, Okay. Okay. Sounds like a very simple... Probably Very different even, from what I do on a daily basis. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate it, Andy. I appreciate you making the time. This was great. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or A.S. Kramer Law after this goes live? Okay. They can reach out to me at Andy, A-N-D-I-E, at ASKramerLaw.com. The website is ASKramerLaw.com, you know, ASKramerLaw. And I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, listeners, this has been yet another episode of the Tech Money Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to subscribe via your favorite podcasting platform. That way, you'll be alerted immediately each week when a new episode is released. And maybe even consider sharing the link to this week's episode with your friends and colleagues. And if you really liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review. This will help make sure that more people just like you are able to find the show organically. You may connect with me, your host, on social at Malcolm on Money, 
And feel free to send us any questions, comments, or kudos to podcast at tech-money.com. That email again is podcast at tech-money.com. And as always, we hope that this episode of the Tech Money Podcast has helped to make you just a little bit smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out tech-money.com. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is tech-money.com. You could also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge with the production, the editing, and the sound controls powered by Tech Money LLC. Thank you for listening. Information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation. This episode of the Tech Money Podcast is sponsored by Capital Area Tax Consultants. Capital Area Tax Consultants is a virtual tax and accounting firm that specializes in helping high net worth individuals navigate the complexities of the tax code. With our comprehensive tax planning services, our one goal is to help clients maximize savings and minimize their tax liability each year. Our team of certified public accountants and enrolled agents is well-versed in the latest tax laws, ensuring that you capitalize on every opportunity for strategic tax optimization. We anticipate changes and keep you up to date on opportunities to potentially reduce your tax bill in the future. With a focus on precision and strategic planning, we are your trusted partner both during tax season and throughout the year. So don't wait. Reach out to us today to experience a better approach to taxes at www.capgllc.com. Again, that web address is www.capgllc.com. Um...